In the winter of 1993, Americans who already believed that their federal government was an overpowered, overreaching monster got another reason to keep on believing. Hot on the heels of the disaster that was the siege of Ruby Ridge in Idaho, the feds narrowed their gaze on a compound in the flat tablelands of central Texas. There, a religious cult known as the Branch Davidians, under the control of a messianistic leader called David Koresh, were reputed to be abusing children and stockpiling weapons. They were a doomsday cult, believing that the events chronicled in the Book of Revelations were about to happen any day. They believed that a titanic conflict of nothing less than cosmic significance was due to happen right there on Texas soil, and that any enemy that came to their door were surely a manifestation of the biblical forces of Babylon manifested in flesh. This group could not be allowed to threaten the peace of the United States of America, with haunting memories of Charles Manson and Jonestown ringing in their ears, the Bureau of Tobacco, Alcohol and Firearms stormed the compound on February 28, 1993. They intended to serve Koresh a warrant and arrest him. The raid was a disaster. A pitched gun battle raged for hours, ending with four agents and six Davidians dead. Afterwards, a tense standoff began one that lasted for 51 days, after which impatience and the lack of understanding of the Davidians' conviction caused the FBI and federal forces to raid the compound once again with tanks on April 19th. During this assault, the compound caught fire and burned to the ground, killing 71 Branch Davidians, including David Koresh himself. The details of the raid and the fire have been the subject of controversy and much conspiratorial discussion ever since. An examination of the details of the Waco siege will form this episode, part two of our American Militia miniseries. Ruby Ridge and Waco served as the one-two punch that reignited the Patriot or Militia movement in America, fanning the flames of anti-government belief and the fear of a mysterious New World Order. With me for this discussion is Mr. Ali Keane. We do recommend you listen to part one of American Militia, The Road to Ruby Ridge, first, as this provides key information relating to this episode. You're listening to White Atlantic Weird, the podcast about fringe beliefs. I'm Kean, and this is American Militia 2, The Shadow of Waco. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. If you are a Branch Davidian, Christ lives in a threadbare piece of land 10 miles east of Waco called Mount Carmel. He has dimples, claims a ninth grade education, married his legal wife when she was 14, enjoys a beer now and then, plays a mean guitar, reportedly packs a 9mm Glock, and keeps an arsenal of military assault rifles, but willingly admits that he is a sinner without equal. He does play, he did play a mean guitar. He did, yeah, he was, <laughs> he was pretty good. So maybe we should have a look at um, a bit of the background to Koresh's Branch Davidians, yeah? 
Yeah, so. I think one of the important things here is understanding who they were and what they believed, because to me, that's precisely what the feds didn't do. They didn't um, understand the Davidians' beliefs and and how fiercely they clung to their beliefs. And, and they didn't really, I guess they didn't really plan for what happened in the way that it did, because they didn't understand the kind of enemy they were dealing with. Um, it's This is interesting because uh, these Waco and Ruby Ridge is what gives rise to again, the creation of the American militia groups. Yeah, certainly the reinvigoration of them in, in the nineties. Yes, uh, and they, but they're both different. Like Ruby Ridge was a family. You know, yes. they were just white supremacist family. Well, that's and, that's how they were portrayed in the media. And the Branch Davidians were a, like a religious sect, so they weren't linked in any way, shape, or form. No, they they weren't known to each other. So I'll say a little bit about the connection between the two events here because uh, I recently got a copy of John Ronson's book, Them, uh, Adventures with Extremists. John Ronson is a British journalist who had a TV show in the 90s called The Secret Rulers of the World. It's a fascinating snapshot of conspiracy culture at that time. I highly recommend it. This book from 2001 is largely a, like a book version of the same things he covers in that show. And... In a chapter about Ruby Ridge primarily, he talks about how he goes to visit uh, the site of Waco afterwards. And he says, um, It was no coincidence that at the height of this bad press, the BATF, that's the uh, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, announced with some pride that they were taking military action against a violent, child-abusing, gun-hoarding religious cult holed up in a compound down in Texas. I don't know if it was a coincidence or, as Jack said, an exercise in public relations. Whatever, six days into Randy Weaver's trial, 53 adults, including David Koresh, and 23 children were burned to death at Mount Carmel in Waco. So here we have uh, Randy Weaver from the Ruby Ridge um, story, which we covered in the previous episode of American Militia, uh, and the connections there. So... Certainly, Ronson is making the case that the the Federals did this partly to maybe distract attention from what they had just done. So the bad press he mentions is is from the, the Ruby Ridge episode. So what they did there and that the monumental screw-ups that happened were seen in a very negative light by the, by the media and by the public. And there was a change in administration in between the two. Yes. Right? So it would have been a change. You would have thought there would be a change in leadership, but actually I don't think there wasn't a change in leadership. Right. Oh, in terms of, yeah, so a lot of the same people, this is crazy to me, some of the very same people who were calling the shots, so to speak, at Ruby Ridge ended up in similar positions during the Waco siege. So uh, one of the things that happened was the, the, the feds had rented a building from across the street from the, the Mount Carmel facility, which was the name of the compound where the Branch Davidians lived. And some of the same snipers uh, were working there who had been basically the person who had who had killed Vicky Weaver at uh, Ruby Ridge, you know, not long before, was, was there too. So, Let's have a look at the... Um, so the, the, the Branch Davidians, they're an offshoot from um, an offshoot, yeah? So the Seventh-day Adventist church is where they all spring from. Um, that comes in 1863. Then 1929 is when the Shepherd's Rod um, offshoot comes from it. And from that, um, that's when the Branch Davidians are created because um, they were disappointed that Ezekiel 9 had not come to pass. Um, in which they say, you know, six people will come uh, with guns to slaughter the enemies. And everyone was waiting around for this to happen. Didn't happen. So um, Ben Roden, 
left with um, a couple of people who believed in his way. And uh, yeah, he created the Branch Davidians. Um, he died in 1978, and Lois Roden, his daughter, I believe, uh, takes over. And Koresh uh, joins kind of soon after that, right? Back uh, when he was still known as Vernon, Vernon Howell. Howell, yeah. Uh, and he gets with her. As <laughs> yeah, he, he, she's pushing 70, and he, he's a young man. He's in his 20s, I believe, in the early 80s when he shows up. And he's been searching for a group like this because he's a tremendously religious young man. He has a, an incredible knowledge of the Bible. He knows it back to front. And um, he's, he's dissatisfied in his life in many ways. He has um, a child he doesn't know with a woman who wouldn't marry him. And he's been a failure at everything else that he's tried. And he's just not really going anywhere in life. But his, his obsession with the Bible is the one thing he knows better than anybody else. So when he arrives... Um, to this group he basically gets together with Lois who is I guess a lonely old woman at this point and this grants him a sort of power because being so close to her and she, her being the boss he is then allowed to you know interpret the Bible in his own way and read scripture and lead uh, scripture reading sessions to the group so he starts to use this to work his way to the top of the group and um, things get very political after that there's a lot of splitting and factions and stuff but at, at one point I think after Lois dies, um, he takes a group of supporters who want him to be the boss of the group, and, and he has to leave. He's having a feud with her son. Yeah, George Roden. George Roden, about who's going to be the leader of the group, and Koresh takes his, his group to a, a, another location, a town called Palestine in Texas, where they're living in the woods, basically in RVs, basically waiting for their chance to get back into the compound and, and take it over, and, and stuff gets some really crazy stuff happens when they were trying to get back in yeah the um you had the rodenville eight which was uh george george roden essentially challenged um koresh to in a resurrection off to that's see that, who, yeah, yeah that's what i'm calling it who's the real messiah because <laughs> um, he wanted to prove or disprove that he was a, a spiritual not a spiritual presence um, obviously the only way to do that is bring people back from the dead <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I don't believe uh, George Roden had uh, full control over what was going on upstairs no, no he, was, he was thought to have had some fairly serious mental disabilities and to the extent that a lot of people even though he was the natural heir because he was Lois's son a lot of people didn't feel that he was going to cut it as a leader and that probably gave Koresh quite a lot of um, help in his, in his attempts to get to the top of the group so, David Koresh decides to uh, rat him out to the law. For for exhuming a corpse, I believe? That, that's a digging one up, yeah. That's <laughs> digging up a body. Um, and so, the, the law don't really pay much attention. So, he decides to uh, go in with seven others uh, to armed ev to get evidence. evidence yeah, to get a picture. Of, of the, yeah, we're going to prove to you that this guy's digging up bodies. But it goes, it goes south, doesn't it? There's a shootout. There's a shootout, yeah. And I think Roden shot twice in that, but he lives. He lives, yeah. He lives to do terrible things in his own future. Yeah, yeah. He, <laughs> he, he uh, ended up killing his roommate because the roommate thought he was uh, another chosen one. Everyone. There's so many messiahs in this story. <laughs> I know, there can only be one, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like Highlander. There sh or Highlander 2. There, sh <laughs> there should only have been one. Um, Roden actually, yeah, murdered him with an axe and... Uh, then he escaped from the, the hospital he was staying in and died on the grounds from a heart attack. Meanwhile, Koresh has to go to court for uh, the shootout that, uh, uh, that happened at the, at, the, at the compound. And I suppose he, he's, he's being charged for potential or attempted murder, I think, yeah. for shooting at Roden. But 
he gets away with it. They all do. Yeah, everybody is acquitted. And uh, I, I think from that point on, Koresh is pretty much in charge of the Branch Davidians, which he, in, in the compound, which he starts to slowly turn into a cult. So uh, folks who study cults will tell you that one of the key things that differentiates a cult from a religion is the worship or, or pretty much the worship of a living leader. So it's not just uh, allowing yourself to an idea or a historical teacher. It's someone who's still alive right there and then. They are the boss and you do what they say. And um, Koresh starts to in- instigate this sort of a situation pretty quickly. So if we look at um, like the prelude to the siege. It's, uh, you know, the ATF surveillance, which they bungled. Yeah. I mean, they, they were seeing a country mile away, it, you know, <laughs> uh, that they weren't. The ATF were uh, appearing to be um, kind of college going hip young people this is the guys hiding out in the in the building across the street yeah yeah and the reason they're paying attention to the davidians is well firstly there are stories swirling around that uh, there's child abuse going on because basically david koresh in 1989 goes to israel and has a revelation uh, which he records onto a an audio tape and he passes around to his followers saying that uh, he is the lamb of god which means that only he uh, is capable of undoing the seven seals mentioned in the book of revelations which if you look up the seven seals you know it includes the uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse mm-hmm. and the death on a pale horse and all, that's where all of that sort of thing comes from so it basically i mean the the davidians always had been a an apocalyptic religious group now they're an apocalyptic cult they firmly believe that the end of the world is going to happen soon could be tomorrow could be next week so they're living with this belief that they're in the end times and they're expecting, you know, in line with their beliefs, they're fully expecting that there will be a cosmic battle. Yeah. And that That's some powerful going. enemy is going to come down on them. And this enemy they refer to as as Babylon. So sort of one of the various bad guy boogeymen from the Bible. So Koresh has his revelation, which not only uh, tells him that he is a sort of a second coming. He doesn't, out, you know, he doesn't out and out refer to himself as being Jesus, but he is referring to himself as some sort of second coming as being the lamb of god and he also says well guess what I, all of the women in the compound are my wives now so it doesn't matter if you're already married you're no longer uh, they're all mine and he begins to act on this and father children with uh, all of the women including some underage girls uh, and this these are the rumors that are swirling around so when you read that headline from the the waco waco, Her- waco herald yeah tribune herald i think yeah that was the uh, that's how people from the outside saw this cult it's weird you read in some places that they were well known and tolerated and you know tolerably well liked because people knew them in the community uh, but at the same time there was something very strange going on and um, certainly Koresh was was fathering children with underage girls <laughs> so but but that's only the first half of, of why the feds were interested. The real reason they were there was the guns. The guns, right, yeah. So they were, uh, the, the ATF had been suspecting the Branch Davidians of stockpiling weapons for a while. And um, a UPS driver informed yeah, the county is, sheriff. this is an incredible story. Yeah, the, the UPS driver is delivering something to the Branch Davidians. And uh, a package breaks open, revealing firearms, yep. inert grenade casings, yes. and black powder. Uh, so everyone is like, Holy shit! Something's up. Something. <laughs> now it, it it must take a lot to um to get people worried about that in in a place like Texas. And again, we you have to contrast our expectations in Europe with with 
those of, of the US and in particular Texas in the 80s, you know, you're allowed to have weapons there. It's not necessarily something that's going to um, get the attention of the, of the authorities. But what they're doing is they're stockpiling large amounts of weapons and supposedly changing them to be fully automatic, which is illegal at that time and place. Yeah. So that's the real, the real issue here. And I guess if you cast your mind back to similar situations that had happened uh, before this, you've obviously you've just had Ruby Ridge, but um, with regards to like cult situations, I, people must have been thinking about the Charles Manson murders. They were probably thinking about, they were definitely thinking about the Jonestown massacre. So there were numerous historical precedents for this that I guess the, fed, the feds thought, we don't want this going that way. No. So we've got this, you know, religious apocalyptic cult holed up in a compound with all of these guns who believe that the end is coming and there's going to be a big battle that they're going to have to fight in as soldiers for God, literally. So from that point of view, I can see why they were paying attention. So they opened the investigation in uh, June 92. And um, Koresh finds out about the investigation about six weeks later. And it said that he invited them in to inspect the stockpile. Now, I'm assuming that he would have actually hidden what he was, uh, the, the, the semi-automatic weapons that he was making automatic, and he'd show them like, a couple of nine mils and all that, that they would have been allowed to have. Yeah, and, and they were training. Like, this was like a training camp. And they were selling weapons. Again, none of this is illegal. I'm just, I'm, I'm only putting it out there as evidence of, like, if you went there before the siege, you would have seen guys training, and you would have seen them selling, going around to gun shows and selling weapons and making money that way. And uh, they they actually ran a weapons store, hilariously called the the mag bag. The mag bag. And that was located. Uh, what did you say it was? was a few, that, few miles away from the about compound. Four miles, yeah, four miles away. It ran out of an auto repair shop, apparently. Mm. So I mean, if the authorities had come in to investigate, I mean, I, I suppose that's what they would have seen. But as long as there weren't any uh, altered fully automatics, I guess it was all above board, right? Well, he would. I think he would have hid them away. But yeah. he, he wanted to make himself look better by saying to the ATF, "Come in and inspect it." But the ATF declined. Is this something that we know he did beforehand, or is this something he said later? Uh, I think it was maybe only one side reporting. Like he invited them in. I don't know if it's verified on both sides that mm -hmm. he did that. Yeah. But if it was true, then the ATF fucked that one up. Yeah, and I'll say another thing. I uh, Koresh's second in command, a fellow named Schneider who did a lot of the negotiating and a lot of the tapes and audio you can hear from the siege involve him talking to the negotiators. And he seems like a much more sensible guy than Koresh, apart from the fact that um, he allowed Koresh to impregnate his wife, which is not that sensible. <laughs> uh, but, but Schneider basically keeps saying, why did you choose to come in this way and surround us and storm our compound when if you really wanted to arrest Koresh, which is what you claim you want, you could have done it any number of other ways. You could have got him on one of his many trips into town or, you know, whenever he leaves the compound, which he does frequently. And they always claimed, oh, we were given bad information that he didn't leave very often. So we had to do it this way. And I, it doesn't really, doesn't pass the smell test. No, no, no. <laughs> I don't, that doesn't hold water because he must have gone by the, the, the surveillance house when he was driving into town. And right? yeah, they were watching for months and they had a mole. They had a man named Rodriguez. Yeah inside the compound um, you know talking to them and seeing what was going on the inside and interestingly Koresh knew that he was a mole and sort of allowed this to continue happening for a period of time so now they did the same thing that they did with Randy Weaver which is they tried to engineer an entrapment 
they uh, Rodriguez is trying to get Koresh to alter weapons so that he can then be done for altering weapons. Right. Which is murky territory once again. But yeah, it's it's crazy to me that uh, he he knew about the mole, but he did nothing. He just allowed it. Kind of makes you, makes you think that they weren't quite gun, that gun jittery. Like they, no, because they let him go. They let him go. So once the siege is actually underway, jumping ahead a tiny little bit, uh, Koresh comes straight into Rodriguez and says, "The you know uh, ATF are coming for us. We know you're one of them. Time to leave, please." <laughs> and he walks out. And he he said afterwards. That he walked out of the compound fully expecting to get, you know, a cold one in the back of the head, but it never came. It's just crazy. It's one of those things. If if they were so, so dangerous, mm, you know, they treated him fairly at least. Yeah, I mean, five in the aftermath of all this, five branch Davidians testified afterwards that Koresh taught his followers that he was the Lamb of God, right? And mm-hmm. the weapons were for an apocalyptic, uh, apocalyptic battle yeah. in which they'd all be killed. Yeah. Right. That probably wasn't going to happen against Rodriguez. <laughs> you know, I think that they were they weren't expecting to be completely merciless. No, you know, I think Rodriguez is expecting them to be merciless killers. Yeah, especially when his cover is blown. Again, they, they, the 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 ATF did not understand what the Davidians were or what they believed, and it's it's been described afterwards as there, there's different kinds of extremism, but there's there's a type called um, defensive extremism, which is they're not going to go out and start a fight. But they will hunker down in in their area, in their bunker, or in their compound, or whatever they have. And if you come looking for them, they will dig in harder and harder. And that's exactly what they did. Yeah, yeah. There, so the ATF surveillance found there was 136 firearms, including assault rifles and handguns, 700 plus magazines for those firearms. That's 200,000 rounds of ammunition, 110 upper and lower receivers for the AR-15 and M16 rifles, grenade launcher attachments for the AR-15 and M16 rifles. Uh, 400 plus MT M31 rifle grenades along with the black powder and other explosive chemicals. Now, if it was me in charge of the ATF, I probably would not have allowed them to uh, collect that many before thinking, I better go and have a chat. <laughs> but they never did have a chat. And this is something that Schneider says in the tapes. He says, and Koresh, to be fair, although Koresh's chats with the um, with the Authorities were far more meandering and, and less to the point, but they both say, come and knock on my door and talk to us, and this would all have been different. You know, which is exactly what Randy Weaver said Yeah, yeah. at Ruby Ridge. So let's, let's jump to the first day of the siege. Oh, so, right, I've got, I've got some notes I've, uh, I've collected from um, different things about, uh, you know, on, on, the, on the interweb regarding this, some reports from... webs. Some reports from some Asians who wrote about it afterwards and all that. But essentially, they were tipped off because it was a news fan, there, right? There, yeah, there was a local news newscaster driving around who had somehow gotten word that this raid was coming. Now, the the local newspaper, the Waco Tribune Herald, was publishing these articles about the cult and the ATF actually were trying to get them to stop doing it. And they had negotiated for weeks about, look, just hold off, don't publish yet. We're, we're going to do this. We're, we're going to do it. And if you start drawing attention to them, then maybe they'll get their back up and they'll feel like they're being watched. No, no shit, because they are being watched yep. by a bunch of, you know, snipers pretending to be 35-year-old college students. <laughs> <laughs> the, so, first, the first article, actually, The Sinful Messiah Part 1, that I read from at the start, that was published on February 27th. Right. So, yeah, it, it, they, this was, like, very close to the, 
one, one day, day one day before the siege so you had like 76 agents hidden under these tarpaulins and <laughs> this was a big operation yeah no joke but they were grossly underprepared personnel means nothing against 200,000 rounds and yeah. upper and lower receivers for the AR-15s well they you know? knew they knew what the Davidians had I just don't think they believed they were going to use them no, they they showed a lot of arrogance. Even naming the operation Showtime, yeah. I think, just shows a lot of arrogance. Like, yeah, we're going to be done and dusted, home for tea. Well, as John Ronson points out in, in the book, them perhaps, you know, part of what was going on here was some higher up, you know, ho hoping to keep his his desk warm or his chair warm, just saw this as an opportunity to, for, for a PR stunt. You know, okay, we look bad because of what happened at Ruby Ridge. Let's get an easy win here. These guys are, you know, right wing... Uh, gun-toting lunatics, uh, child abusers and religious nuts. Let's go in and wipe them out and uh, make the world a better place and we'll look good again. So the the newscaster stops. He's driving around looking for the compound because he's heard that there will be a raid. I don't know how we found out, actually. But he stops a random postman and says, hey, you know, which way to the compound? I hear there's going to be a raid. Which sounds like an incredible thing to say, but apparently that's what happened. And it turned out that the... The mailman was indeed a Branch Davidian and, in fact, one of David Koresh's in-laws. Brother-in-law. Brother now, David Koresh presumably has a lot of brother-in-laws. 50 of them. Because he's got so many wives. <laughs> he, yeah, he, and did I, I can't remember if I said about, about 14 children, I think, he fathered with all of the women in the compound. Ooh. So the raid is bungled from the beginning they should have stopped then but they didn't they go ahead with it the momentum is built up the machine is running they didn't have a clear plan of what the hell was going on you know I mean their agent said that the squad surrounding and approaching the building they could only communicate with other squads through the squad leaders and that if the leader was shot and at least one was the squad couldn't receive or send messages you know there was a half a dozen agents climbed the roof using two steel ladders um, one broke a window that led to the weapons room and three agents jumped in there. Uh, there'd already been gunfire coming through the window and the bullets were penetrating the walls yeah. and the doors. And these guys, these ATF people, are not armed with the, the proper uh, firearms necessary to be taken on guys that, that have armour-piercing bullets and wall-piercing bullets. Again, you know? they should have. They knew what they were going up against, but I just don't believe that they thought they were, that those weapons were going to be used. They were run out of ammo. The yeah, ATF the, ran out of ammo. The ATF ran out of ammo before... <laughs> Before the Davidians did. That's incredible. <laughs> like this massive operation, 70-odd agents. And I just, I don't think they believed what they were going up against. So they've got this, what they were attempting in theory, what they've always claimed is they were going in there to serve a search warrant and arrest Koresh and anybody else who might have resisted. But we'll never know what they actually intended to do because it ter quickly turns into a pitched battle. Uh, and a, a two-hour-long gunfight ensues. And I guess, depending on who you read or what you watch, uh, people some people believe that the Davidians shot first, and some people believe that the ATF shot first. And uh, I don't know, do we want to talk about that? Do you have any feelings either way from your reading? I think with the ATF people, um, that many agents rocking up there, I think they would have had that kind of uh, battle blood going on you know i think that the branch davidians didn't shoot first when they found out who rodriguez was or yep. you know they said to rodriguez we know who you are you know hit the road yeah, yeah. they didn't shoot first they allowed the atf to collect their wounded and dead later you know? yes so after, after the that's, first siege yeah. again defensive extremism and yep. i can't i think you can't call it defensive extremism uh if you shoot first yes so i'm of the opinion that even though 
I completely disagree with what uh, what Koresh was, and you know I think he was a total creep. I don't think they shot first. Yeah, I mean, I think we'll probably never know, but to folks who believe that the Davidians shot first, it it sh- it, it means a lot. It's a very significant change in the story because it shows you they were really messed up lunatic you know gun nuts if you believe that the government shot first most people showing that view believe that it was deliberate and that they never intended to take anybody peacefully and that they were doing this as a show of power particularly the conspiratorial fringe you see all of this as a battle between you know good and evil between the evil uh, new world order who want to control everything and, and destroy stuff just to show you that they can whereas i fall in the middle and i think that probably on balance i reckon the federals probably did shoot first but that it was a bungle, it was and, a bungle. And, a, and a mess up and uh, that things just got out of hand because of that i don't really believe that they intended to go in and kill everybody and destroy everything i don't think that was their hoped for or expected conclusion but I just think it was a badly planned and a badly run raid. Yeah, well, even if they... I mean, they couldn't communicate with anyone. You know, um, when it came to evacuating uh, personnel, they had no plan in place. Like, they were depending on... Uh, I think it was a Jeep, uh, Jim McLemore, who was a journalist covering it. He was helping drive him out. You know, they put him on a, uh, put one of the agents on a Jeep, covered him with some blanket and, and got rid of him, you know, and drove him out of the compound. They didn't, they didn't have a clue what they were doing. Now, after... In the aftermath of all this, the ATF had a look at what they were doing in future, you know, and they made more contingency plans for operational, um, operational, uh, what am I thinking, what am I thinking of? Operations. Operations. Operational <laughs> operations. <laughs> um, so after that, February 28th, first day raid, you know, the bloodiest um, yeah. four, of, of the 51 Four days. agents dead? Four dead, 16 wounded. 16. Um, five or six Branch Davidians? Five Br- Branch Davidians. Two killed at the hands of the Branch Davidians because of their wounds. Yeah. Um, so this is serious stuff you know it is yeah and people are paying attention suddenly there's media everywhere um, and people are showing up to see and uh, within a few weeks you have sort of political extremists and just kind of rubberneckers showing up from basically across America including infamously a young Timothy McVeigh who we will talk about in uh, episode 3 of uh, American Militia yeah, so I'll just plant that seed there. But uh, yeah, video footage from the time shows Timothy McVeigh, uh, you know, as one of the people who's in the crowd outside the compound looking in with his car, supporting the Branch Davidians and seeing this as, you know, clear overreach by a corrupt uh, New World Order uh, government. Which he, was, which he was a part of. He was a soldier. Well, I mean, we'll get to this in the next episode, but yeah, his, his disillusionment at military life is a big part of his story and how he changed and became... An anti-government fanatic. So it was two and a half hours the gun battle lasted on February 28th. And the sheriff, the county sheriff, had to negotiate the ceasefire. Right? Now, did, you, the, oh, the, so, um, did, you, did you hear the recording where Koresh himself calls up 911? Right? Minutes, no. minutes into the conflict, Koresh himself calls up 911 and is talking to, you know, emergency services. And he's saying, call them off. Well, you're, you're storming my house, you know. You're storming our, there's women and children in here. And they, they start talking to him and almost immediately he goes off on these like religious tangents. They're like, okay, Mr. Koresh, tell us about... And he's just like, well, did you know that the seven seals of the apocalypse will happen when the, the you know... And they're trying to get him to talk normally and he, he's just... So he's, he's a true believer, you know? Mm. And, and I, I still think that the, the ATF did not appreciate what they were going up against because when you have a guy who's 
prefers to talk about revelations in the middle of a gun battle rather than like actual how are we going to stop this and sort this out you know you're not dealing with somebody who thinks the way you do they were thinking in terms of military well eventually it gets more militarized the, the whole siege does but they I, they never really understood what they were what they surely were robert with. rodriguez would have um been gathering all this evidence and creating a dossier on koresh saying like this is what this guy believes in this is what you know this is how the, the compound is run and then present this to his superiors and then they would have said you know they could maybe come up with a different plan of how we're going to get koresh out i think you know? we have a, a case of the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing you know i i, I always say um you know, rather rather than don't blame conspiracy on something when it could just be incompetence, because I think we can all think of enough examples in, you know, just even companies we've worked for where stuff, bad stuff that happens that is bad. It's not because there's some evil master plan. It's just because human beings mess things up. Uh, another case of the branch of Indians being defense extremists um, and not. Not, not not being actively not, not the aggressors yeah not yeah. aggressive yes. was they they allowed the ATF to collect the dead and wounded they stood by and said yeah grab them you know they, they didn't shoot anyone they didn't threaten them you know yeah they weren't I mean they weren't trying to they they hadn't a hope they, they did not have a hope of going out there and like destroying all the Asians but they wanted to be left alone on the one hand but on the other hand their belief system required this battle to happen. They This fit in perfectly to their pre-existing belief that there was a big battle coming with the forces of darkness, the forces of Babylon, and that this had to happen in order uh, for the, the prophecies to happen. So this battle was more than just a siege to them. This had cosmic significance, spiritual significance. So again, their thinking on it was just completely different to the way the, the ATF were thinking. So at the end of that day, the FBI brought him. Uh, because yeah, things, things escalate they, rapidly. They yeah. And then the, the, the next month and a half, really, is a lot of back and forth between, between them. Children are released from the compound almost immediately when the FBI show up. Um, so Koresh saying, there's women and children here on the phone to 911. He really believes that, like... And in one of the home videos he makes, he says, like, you know, you don't come for the wife, my wife and child, you know, if it's me you want, yeah, we'll, we'll do this. Yeah. Um, but you leave the women and children alone. And again, he shows himself not to be the aggressor by releasing these children. Yeah. But and the, the FBI rightly realized that if when people start seeing these videos of Koresh with all the children and the, the young women and stuff, he said, well, this is going to humanize them, you know, right? Our narrative of these are a bunch of crazy loons and they need to, they're dangerous and they need to be crushed well that that will change if people start seeing their videos because as Koresh says himself you know this is my family might not look like your family but uh you know women and children and and you know in, innocent families that will change the narrative and you can watch the videos yourself and, yeah. and you know it just as out there as their beliefs are they're real people who are not stupid and and they know what they're in for and you can argue whether or not brainwashing is a real thing. I, I don't really think it is myself, but they're just people with uh, odd and perhaps extreme beliefs, but they're not, they're not silly. You know, they're not stupid anyway. Well, they, the FBI start doing different, different, all different kinds of tactics, cutting electricity off. Yeah. They let Koresh broadcast in the Christian broadcasting network. Yeah. And he says, I'll surrender if you play this message. And then he immediately, reneges on that going, saying god, nah. god has told me that actually no 
Which isn't great. No, it pisses the FBI off, and then that's when they cut electricity off of the compound. But they give it back then. They do, but they do it inconsistently. So the problem is that Koresh and Schneider are talking to these negotiators, um, many different negotiators across the course of the weeks, but primarily a guy named uh, Byron Sage, who shows up in a lot of the documentaries you can watch about this. And he eventually they start saying to, to Byron, like, look, you keep telling me that you're going to give us, you're going to not cut the electricity or you're going to, you know, help us or give us some time. And then, and then these things happen anyway. So you have no control over what the military are doing, what the FBI are doing. And at this point, the compound is surrounded by tanks and they're blasting noise and lights at them all through the night so they can't sleep. So it's, it's psychological warfare. And, you know, the negotiators clearly have no control because at this point, the FBI is split into sort of two camps. The, the people who want to keep talking and working through this more slowly, and then the militarized people who have lost patience and are frustrated. And you can hear, the, you can feel the frustration in the tapes where they're talking to Koresh, and they're saying, David, can we, can we talk about ending the siege? And he just keeps talking about revelations and seals and apocalypse, and they're losing it. Well, midway through the siege, um, I think it was... April the 4th, right, the lawyers meet the Branch Davidians, acting on behalf of Branch Davidians, yeah, they, they meet with Koresh, and Koresh says, okay, after Passover, we'll surrender. So, they observe Passover, and then he refuses to give them the exit date, he's like, well, I said, but after Passover, I didn't say <laughs> when. <laughs> Punked. <laughs> and the HRT commander loses his shit, he's like, right, tear gas, tear gas and that's when um, and this goes all the way up to Clinton who is just just become president and in the last four months I think yeah, yeah January and, and what they what they used to sell the tear gas to him is oh there's child abuse going on in there so the the initial interest from the, from the ATF was mostly about the weapons but the the whole thing about the child abuse comes back in at this point when when they want to step up the action a notch and become more proactive shall we say Clinton gives the order and he's convinced by them telling him you know, the longer these guys are in there, the longer they have to, I don't know, hit children or something. Well, it's Janet Reno who gives the order, but she says, why now? Why don't we just wait? Yes. And it takes another five days before she okays that tear gas. I think it's pretty clear that the child abuse thing is a, an excuse. I mean, it, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, he is married to all these 14-year-old and 12-year-old girls, which is not okay. But, like, why? They're pretending like the situation has suddenly become more urgent when nothing appreciably has changed and you it's they've run out of patience i think they just they're starting to feel like they look silly they look bad and oh well imagine how stupid they look well they it's yeah. been six weeks and they can't get them out and every time koresh has gone yeah okay nah <laughs> yeah, well it's cl it's clear that koresh doesn't he's not operating to a timeline but he looks like he is in full control of the branch davidians and the fbi yes he's got that total control where yeah. the, the tanks are at the door and his words alone have stopped And he's them. infuriating everyone by saying things like, well, I'm working on this document. I'm working on a new, a new version of the Gospels, which is being channeled to me from God. And only then, you know, only when that's finished, uh, can this come to an end. But he never finishes it, you know? Uh, no, there's a, one of the uh, children is released... Uh, right at the end. Right at the end with the floppy disk, with his manifesto on it. <laughs> How 90s. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> on a floppy disk. Right, so... Basically, things eventually come to a head on April 19th. 
So this is when the, the tear gas comes in. Yeah, it all takes place over um, in between 10 to 6 and, well, 12.55 is when the end of the, you know, the fire, the, the, the fire goes out. But in, in about, within about 20 minutes, the tanks are in. Um, the, the tear gas. So they're driving the around, flattening all the cars. And then they, they're not just tanks, though. They're like some sort of battery augmented tanks that have these big arms sticking out the front of them mm. with uh, tools for like bashing in walls. And they're crushing the sides of the compound and dropping canisters inside to spread the tear gas. So they, they're throwing the tear gas in. Um, the surveillance tapes have picked up the Branch Davidians saying they're going to kill us. Uh, and then they start saying the fuel has to go all around to get started. Well, there are two cans here if that's poured soon. You know, the surveillance has captured audio to make it look like the Branch Davidians are pouring petrol to start a fire. Like, this is our last effort. You're not going to get us. We'll go out in our own terms, as it were. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, There's dialogue you can read online, um, which supposedly is from a bug that was inside the compound. And it has the Davidians saying things like, oh, spread it here and pour it all out and... You know, don't pour it out all out. We might need some later. Yeah, and it's it's not clear what they're talking about, but obviously the context of it is, is supposed to make you feel like oh, they're they're deliberately setting the whole thing on fire. Now, there's other reports I've read that state that well, if you can get the actual audio itself, it's really not that clear. You know, it's like listening to white noise and trying to decide what you think it is. So, uh, the, the other thing is that the Davidians who escaped have always maintained there was no plan to commit suicide or burn the building at all so i mean it's possible i wouldn't rule it out but the evidence for it isn't amazing for me anyway well it's it's what's interesting is that at 1207 the first flames appear yeah um and they appear at three separate places yeah there's two spots in the front building and then a couple of minutes later uh it's up on the first floor and it's three completely different areas i mean the compound was not small no no, it's quite large. And the, the house was not a small, you no. know. I mean, it, how many people were living there? Of course, fucking huge, right? So that's three separate areas where fires take place. Could you really say it was started by the tear gas? One of the statements often made is that the CIA ran out... Well, they ran out of tear gas. Again, can you imagine? FBI. Sorry, the FBI. Like, how, how much gas they were pouring in there they ran out they, they, they were pouring they were pouring it from the get go and they had to they had to refuel as it were and they started using a more pyrotechnic version of the, the CS gas as it's called um, and, and, and the canisters for this were found in the rubble afterwards proving that they did use it at least at some point or in some locations but they've always maintained that well that was only put into a certain location and that this was hours before the fire started and that the regular gas they were using most of the time is not flammable, or at least is not capable of going up the way the fire supposedly did. I think a, a report found afterwards that the, the, the tear gas was flammable in certain certain conditions. I mean, they were pouring so much of it in there. If it was ever going to go, it would have gone up in that in that circumstance. So like the who shot first, the who started the fire thing fundamentally breaks commentators on Waco down into how you feel about the government versus how you feel about the Davidians. And either you believe that the Davidians were completely, you know, crazy and suicidal and they did this deliberately, or you believe the government was evil and wanted to kill them from the get-go, to which I'd say, why did they wait 51 days to do it? Um, but again, I suspect it comes down to a mess-up, a screw-up. I think it probably, I think the actions of the FBI probably caused it, but I 
doubt it was meant to happen the way it happened. They should have had, right? It's at, uh, I think, 12... 12-12, uh, uh, an, emergency, an emergency call is played. Uh, um, an emergency call is placed to the fire department. And it's 12.43 before the fire trucks arrive at the compound. You know, that's about 12 minutes before the fire goes out. They should have had those... Uh, um, those fire engines kind of on standby, not in in the way of gunfire or anything like that, but you know, somewhere closer than a fucking half an hour away. Yeah, and the other thing is that I think under no circumstances did they believe that the Davidians were going to sit in there and just wait for the for the for the compound to like collapse around them or catch fire. And again, they did not believe that these people they didn't appreciate what these people believed and how they believed it, and that you know I think they thought well if we surround them and tighten the noose and tighten our grip. Of course they're going to come out. They'll have to come out. But no, they alter- They utterly believed this was the end times and this battle had to happen. And uh, you know, they believed they were going to be um, reborn or yeah, uh, well, yeah, they, I mean, that, they would go to heaven in such in some in some fashion. So I think they were shocked. The the FBI were using militarized tactics. You know, they were thinking this is how we behave when we're you know in the Middle East uh, fighting against another a- another militarized enemy. But this was not the case at all. So, 12.07, the first flames appear, and by 12.55, the entire compound is levelled, and the fire dies out. That is 48 minutes. For that size of a compound to go up like that, in 48 minutes, it almost seems unbelievable to me. Like, what I think... What I think is uh, that fuel was poured around there to be used as a last-ditch effort, but they didn't think they'd need to use it that soon. By the Davidians? By the Davidians, yeah. Uh, I think they they just done that as a uh, a last gasp effort, but I don't think they meant for it to to actually start. That, right. Maybe that early. Uh, I think that maybe it was with the fuel, the amount of fuel being poured out. I think maybe some of the tear gas. It it, it caught up some spark lit lit that um that fire and fanned by the high winds. Suddenly it just took a hold. I mean it's it apparently went up like paper. Yeah. The size of that compound, forty eight minutes. That is. It sounds like both parties had a hand in that. Yeah, I mean, it's possible. I, again, it's like the who shoots first. It's one of those things we'll never know for sure. But I feel like how how you feel about it or what you think happened says a lot about sort of who you emotionally side with in this story. And again, I've got to come down in the middle and say it was probably just a mess up that unfortunately, unsatisfyingly, doesn't tell us a whole lot about either side. Uh, just looking through Wikipedia in the controversy section, um, after the compound burnt down, uh, there was there was some odd stuff that happened, um, and there were some key pieces of evidence that went missing. And there's, it's pretty clear the government certainly lied about elements of this for years in some cases, uh, until they were forced to to come out about things. So one of the key things about the Who Shoots First controversy was about the front doors of the compound. Right. So the Davidians had always maintained that. The fire came from without, through the doors, and the uh, federal feds had always said, no, the Davidians shot from inside. And just reading here, there was an attorney who went in and testified at the trial that um, protruding metal on the inside of the right-hand entry door made it clear that bullet holes were made by incoming rounds. Uh, He also testified that only the right-hand entry door had bullet holes, while the left-hand entry door was intact. The government presented the left-hand door at the trial, claiming that the right-hand door had been lost. So I'm putting on my conspiracy hat for a minute and saying, yeah, that's a bit weird, isn't it? 
So there was a lot, there was a lot of faff over the, uh, the missing door. Um, the fact that the left-hand door is in the condition it's in tells you that the right-hand door was not consumed by the fire. It was lost on purpose by somebody. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Because they'd be able to tell with a ballistics report. Yes. The exit, um, the exit of a bullet, you know, which way it was fired, and then they'd be able to tell. Well. Yes. Well, I would know. Would would that, would that tell you like who fi- still who fired first? It just proves that it's somebody tr- it proves fired. Proves the direction of whether the bullets were going coming in or coming in or out. out. Yeah. So that would have been the significance of the door. Oh, here we go. So about the CS gas. So uh, one of the Davidians who later wrote a book about it was uh, David Thibodeau. So he said. Uh, they started to break down the walls, break uh, break the windows to spread the CS gas around the building. Uh, further controversy involves the use of gas grenades. And uh, Janet Reno, yeah. who was a district attorney, um, had specifically directed no pyrotechnic devices be used. And between, it says, basically for years afterwards, FBI spokesmen denied under oath the use of any sort of pyrotechnic devices during the assault. However, pyrotechnic uh, CS gas grenades had been found in the rubble immediately following the fire. and But the FBI, like I said, had always claimed the fire started three hours after these grenades were used. Uh, and when the FBI's documents were turned over to Congress for an investigation in 1994, the page listing the use of the pyrotechnic devices was missing. Uh. The failure for six years to disclose the use of pyrotechnics Despite Reno's specific directive, uh, let her to demand an investigation. Uh, and less than a month after this, Texas state authorities bulldozed the site, rendering further gather- gathering of forensic evidence impossible. So there's some weird stuff going on yeah, there. Yeah, that is very odd. Yeah, I... <laughs> I mean, imagine if they found out that they just went against the attorney general's wishes and used pyrotechnic CS gas. In fact, if if anything, I think if they did do that, it's because they were running low on the tear gas, and they didn't have time to re-equip or go back or get someone to bring up more CS gas. They just yeah. turned in what they had. And again, going back to my own our own experiences, you know, like if you've ever been at a job where like the wrong thing was done, it's because someone just didn't have time to do things properly and took a shortcut. I can well imagine some harried hassled mid manager in the fbi being like oh shit we've run out of these things can you get us some more well only these ones sir but you know technically we're not supposed to i don't have time just <laughs> stick them in the gun you know <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. I, I again in, incompetency over over conspiracy any day for me and then what happens is you, you this engenders a conspiracy then because after the fact they're like oh shit we didn't do this properly we've got to Gotta lose that paperwork, you know? <laughs> but then you, you get a real conspiracy. <laughs> right. Um, any other thoughts you wanted to go through before I do a sort of a closer? Um, not, not too much. Robert uh, Rodriguez t- testified two years later, actually, that the supervisors knew that he left and he warned everyone and the two supervisors, um, I think Sarabin and Chanyaki, Chuck Sarabin and uh, Philip uh, Kanyaki. Uh, I'm not pronouncing that last name right. It's close enough. Um, they said, yeah, we don't see any reason why it can't go ahead. This guy was like, yeah, they are up to their eyeballs and ammunitions. Are you sure? And they went, yeah, go for it. They were fired by the Treasury Committee on investigation and they were fucking rehired to lower level positions. Of course. Jobs for the boys, am I right? (laughs) (laughs) Jobs for the lads. Um, There was no FBI casualties. No. Yeah, they showed the ATF how it's done. 
And they, <laughs> and they always maintained that no shots were fired by the FBI on April 19th. That's right. Which is another source of controversy. And there are, are some documentaries, I think the one I watched that was the most conspiratorial was called Waco, A New Revelation, which heavily focused on this sort of infrared sort of radiation footage where you can see the agents moving around with all these kind of light shows coming out of them that look like gunfire. Uh, although I mean I go back and forth on it it's kind of 50-50 it's a bit like when you're watching those YouTube videos of ooh look I've drawn a circle around this picture to show you that something funny is happening and you know which kind of raises a few red flags for me but again if if I found out that you know years later they admitted sorry I guess we lied about that too I wouldn't be tremendously surprised would you? I don't think so no I mean it, this looks like a clusterfuck that they then tried to cover up certain details off for sure but i i don't believe they went in looking to murder everybody from the off i think it just started on the wrong foot and just went downhill would you um would you be okay with the branch davidians just being left alone in their compound with all their guns i think if i was the local authorities i i'd look into that <laughs> but then that's me i mean you know in texas in america and, and as long as you're doing things in a particular way, you can have a bunch of guns. Well, they weren't they weren't disturbing anybody else except them. And if 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 they believed, or if they've looked into what they actually believe, and they were storing up the guns for this battle that never happened, maybe everyone kind of sloped off eventually. Yeah, but you know, imagine five years down the road, or it's two thousand and one now, and all those children have grown up, and they're like, "Yeah, Koresh, here's the thing, mate." <laughs> Fuck yourself. Well, <laughs> I'm off. I'm out of here. Maybe. I, I think that was never going to happen because of Jonestown, because of the Order, because of the Aryan Nations, because of all these other groups and, and disasters that had happened. I think there was no way the authorities were going to let a group like the Branch Davidians just do their thing on their own with, with that kind of firepower. That's what I think. Do you think they should have sent warnings to them? Uh, yeah, I think... Yeah. We're, they we're, should have had somebody come knock on the door and say, We're surveilling you. Look, this is what we're not okay with. Um, and, and establish some kind of dialogue and just know, know them, you know? Because Koresh invited them into the compound saying, Inspector weapons. Supposedly. Supposedly, right. I, I mean, I guess he would have, like you said earlier on, he would have stashed all his big As, shit. Assuming he did that. Let's assume he did, that's true and he did that. Yeah, they should have taken advantage of that. Okay. To wrap things up, yep. I'm going to do a final reading from John Ronson's Them once again. And this uh, kind of ties a link between our first American Militia episode, the Ruby Ridge one, and this episode. Because this features Randy Weaver from the Ruby Ridge siege visiting Waco in the years afterwards. So this is John Ronson meeting with him at Waco some point in the mid to late 90s. So it says... Randy had never visited the ruins of the Branch Davidian Church at Waco, but for hundreds of thousands of Americans, perhaps even millions, the Weaver siege and the burning of David Koresh's church are forever linked, proof of a government gone crazy, a new world order coming to kill whoever does not bow to them. We pulled into the car park near burnt-out school buses and razor wire and wreckage from the old church lying in the grass. Amongst this wreckage was a shining new building, for six months, local volunteers had been spending their weekends rebuilding the church. It was nearly finished. And I found out in other areas that this church was financed by none other than a young Alex Jones. <laughs> uh. 
We jumped out of the car. The volunteers stopped working and looked up at us and I heard some of them whisper, is that Randy Weaver? Randy was hugged by strangers. When people asked him how he was doing, he said, I ain't been shot lately. Yep, things are looking up. There was a little laughter. The volunteers hammered and sawed and painted the doors. Some wore t-shirts that read, death to the new world order. I saw one man wearing an official Ruby Ridge t-shirt. Ruby Ridge, freedom at any cost. Randy sold these t-shirts most weekends at gun shows around the United States, along with the opportunity to have your photograph taken with Randy Weaver, $5. This was how he earned a living. The photographs were taken by his new wife, Linda, on a Polaroid Instamatic, and Randy would sign them, freedom at any cost. Um, and it later goes on to say that Randy has changed since the siege, since the death of his wife. I imagine that Vicky, in fact, was the one with the passionate hatred for the New World Order, and Randy was happy to go along with it because he loved her, as long as she didn't object to him cutting loose once in a while to go drinking with his friends from the Aryan Nations. Back then, they read the Bible most nights. Now, Randy is an agnostic. He no longer believes that the New World Order, the Bilderberg Group, and the secret clique of international bankers were responsible for the murders of his wife and son. So interesting how he had a bit of a change of heart, he, even though he no longer was a true blue believer in the anti-government conspiracy stuff. He was still such a fixture in that world that he was living his life going around to these shows and, you know, trading on his uh, his notoriety. It almost sounds like, uh, you know, one of those uh, kind of supporting characters from a sci-fi TV show going around doing all the cons. Like, uh, like Galaxy Quest? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but whether he likes it or not all these other people around him are keeping this up they are believers and they are keeping this going because uh, also at Waco with John Ronson in this chapter is uh, the deplorable Alex Jones and the entertaining Colonel Bo Greitz who shows up later <laughs> just to show you that all these guys really are connected and tied yeah. together and one uh, one infamous character who's connected to this and who we'll be talking about next of course is none other than Timothy McVeigh so that will be in episode three of American Militia. So stick around for that. God is on your side. It don't matter who shoots first. Family don't look like you as a cult. That is the worst. Oh, they weren't afraid to die in a compound blown to bits. And they built a better life, but they dreamed of apocalypse. They weren't afraid to die in a compound blown to bits. They built a better life, but they dreamed of apocalypse. They built a better life, but they dreamed of apocalypse. You've been listening to another patriotic, government-hating episode of White Atlantic Weird. As usual, we have a few calls to action we'd like you to do if you've been enjoying the show so far. Namely, we want you to review us, give us lots of lovely stars, uh, write something clever or funny in that little box, wherever it is that you review things on your podcast app of choice. If what you read is good enough, interesting enough, or funny enough, we'll be happy to read it out on the show. Do send in any weird things that have ever happened to you or any fringe political beliefs you may have yourself. Uh, you can get in touch with us, as always, on Twitter, where we're at Strange Ireland, or on Instagram, where we are White Atlantic Weird Podcast. So thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this... Unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.